Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to Indie Thinker with Reed Juberman. I am super excited about my guest today because I don't know if you're like me, but if you have wondered why there are politicians right now in America that have begun to endorse socialist ideas at the same time, things like the 1619 Project is being released, critical race theory is being taught in public schools, and absolutely infested the academy. Rich people are being villainized with slogans like Eat the Rich, and avowed Marxist organizations like BLM can rise up with a program like Abolish the Police, when the police are one of the few entities in America that would stop anarchy and chaos if it was to break out in our city streets. Now, I can understand if you want to look at all of these events as random. However, when you look at history, you come to the realization that these things are way too strategic and way too commonplace to just simply be ironic. And that's why my guest, Bill Federer, is so important to have on today. Now, there's a lot I could say about Bill. He's a genius-level intellect. He's an amazing historian. He's a prolific author. But the real reason I wanted to have him on today is because one of his most recent books, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, is all about how the deep state capitalizes on crisis to consolidate control. So quick question. Have you seen a bunch of manufactured crises in the United States lately and wondered where those are coming from? Well, we're going to talk about all that. But before we do that, I want to get like Ferris Bueller with you and just ask, what? You're still here? Go. Go do us a big favor. Before you go any further, I offer this podcast totally for free. And the only thing I ask in return is that you help us reach a broader audience with it. So before you listen to another minute, please do us a big favor. We need your help rating this podcast on Apple and commenting on this video if you're watching on YouTube. Even if you're not watching on YouTube, go right now and just shoot a comment in the section and say, fantastic, fire, 100, whatever you want to say. But please just just comment. That will help the algorithms of this video reach more people. So please do what you can. Share this video also with others. That will be really, really huge for us at this stage in the game. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. I am really, really excited to have a historian, a scholar, a man that's authored over 25 books, uh, a man that has a program called Faith in History, TCT, on the TCT network, uh, the American Minute, which uh, releases every single day on multiple different networks. Uh, as I said, a phenomenal hist- uh, scholar and historian and a defender of the unborn, and more than that, a good man. Bill Federer, thank you so much for being on IndieThinker. Well, Reed, great to be with you. Uh, absolutely my pleasure. So uh, I, I found it really, really interesting what you're doing, especially in the realm of, of the body of Christ, because I don't know anybody else that's doing what you're doing in terms of uh, just really helping us to wrap our mind around history. Um, so I want to jump into that, and that will take up the bulk of our conversation, because I think uh, that saying, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it, probably is more relevant today than it ever has been. Uh, and, and you'll illustrate that with some of what's going on in our nation, uh, and then also, too, how that relates to things that have happened in the past. But uh, before we do that, maybe just a lighthearted question. So you've written over 25 books. You've written books that kind of span the gamut of history, faith, and all sorts of other things, politics. Uh, so what is your favorite book in the 25 that you've written? Mm, well, that's a tough question. <laughs> it's like asking which one's your favorite kid, I guess. Yeah, well, I know the, the one that really I found inspiring was George Washington Carver, mm-hmm. and he's the black scientist that came up with all the uses for the peanut. Yeah. 
and he lived at a time when the South was just coming out of slavery, and he experienced the discrimination, but he didn't get bitter, and he didn't uh, use it as an excuse for victimhood. Uh, matter of fact, he said, I never allowed anyone to give me money, no difference how badly I needed it. I wanted literally to earn my own living. Yeah, but if you do that, doesn't that mean that you've internalized your white supremacy? Like, <laughs> you have to have a grievance, don't you? Uh, it's unfortunate how they're using this, a Marxist strategy <laughs> yeah. to bring division. But he ended up coming up with hundreds of uses for the peanut, and it revolutionized the economy of America South. So I spoke in Dothan, Alabama, and they uh, gave me the key to the city, right? Oh, the awesome. mayor did. And they have an annual George Washington Carver Day. And they have a big side of a building painted with him with his microscope downtown and the one farmer said, I owe my living to George Washington Carver. And uh, anyway, the boll weevil is a little insect from Mexico, and it ate up the cotton crop. And so uh, the farmers were destitute. And so he teaches them how to plant peanuts. They replenish the soil, but there was no market for them because they were called goobers, and you fed them to your horses, but nobody ate them. And, mm. and so he came up with all these uses, everything from dyeing leather to... Uh, you know, we have what today, you know, soybeans used for mock chicken and mock beef and soy burgers and things like that. Well, he's the one that pioneered that and, and the non-toxic colors that crayons are made out of, you know, and, uh, so he, uh, so wait, he did that too. I, I, yeah. Yeah. He created all these different things. Wild. And, um, so he's, that's one of the short books, but it's a real favorite. So anyway, awesome. Okay. Uh, well, I've one got your book, quotes, by the way, he said, I, I never, I, um, I don't, uh, take any books into my laboratory, the thing I'm to do and the way of doing it are revealed to me. Without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless. And then another famous quote of his, he said, with one hand in the hand of Christ and the other hand in the hand of a man in need, then Christ could get across the, the vacuum and I became an agent. Thus the passage, I can do all things through Christ, came to have real meaning. And that inspires me because, okay, young people are like, what should I do with my life? It's like, find out where there's a real human need and try to meet it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and trust God to give you ideas. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. Okay, so uh, for, for any audience members that uh, are not familiar with you, would you give us kind of just like a brief uh, history of what you do and who you are? Well, thanks. Uh, my website's AmericanMinute.com, and I send out a free daily history email called American Minute, and it's... Um, by God's grace, has a wide readership, and it gets reposted all over. I do it as a daily radio spot called American Minute. I do a, a daily TV program called Faith in History that's available on a TCT network, which is on DirecTV and Roku and stuff. And then, um, anyway, uh, you know, one of 11 kids, I've, and I've been married 40 years, and um, four kids, they're all grown. But it's just a passion. Um, there was a great quote from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian on John F. Kennedy's staff. And the quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. Mm. So I asked people, um, have you ever met someone who's lost their memory? Yeah. Sort of sad. They have Alzheimer's. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. Yeah. Well, we sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the <laughs> freest country that planet Earth yes. has ever seen with more individual opportunity and liberty. And we forgot how we got here. And we're like that person without 
a memory and they're just taking our freedoms out of our hand and we're staring off in space. And so when I share these history stories, it's like, oh, that's how unique we are as Americans. Oh, the idea of an individual. So I get to be, be me and have rights as me without being associated with some group, you know? Yeah. Yeah. See, that, that's why I'm so glad that you're here today, because I think that not only do we not, we're, not only do we not have a national identity, we're trying to tear down what we have uh, as of 2020 with trying to get rid of monuments and trying to, you know, rewrite history in terms of 1619 project and all sorts of other things like that. And if all these things were in a vacuum, it would be, you know, it'd be one thing. But it seems like all of these things are piling up right now, 2020, and then post that 2021. And all of these things are starting to happen and transition. And, uh, and so we've seen the rise of kind of gender identity and gender ideology in that conversation then what a, what we're having is a quote-unquote now racial reckoning in, a, in America and then we're seeing kind of almost an assault on truth elevating personal subjective experience above uh, objective reality objective truth so now uh, white supremacy is everywhere even if there is not any kind of like you know, objective evidence for it. Uh, it's just, it permeates everything because, of course, our nation was founded on white supremacy, according to some people. Uh, and so, so again, you know, if any of these happen individually, you're like, 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 let's have a conversation about them. But now as they're happening kind of continually, and then you even think to yourself about kind of the systemic racism narrative of policing in America and all that stuff. And then when you look at the objective statistics, they just don't bear witness to the, um, to the, to the manner of conversation that we're having right now. And all of these things are happening. And for me, I, I, as a history teacher and somebody who's kind of like an armchair buff, but somebody that doesn't know nearly enough about history, the one thing uh, that I can say is that the reason any of these are concerning me is because I know enough about history to be concerned with what's happening in America right now. Um, and so this also comes on the heels of me teaching my kids about communism and socialism. And I've got your book right here, uh, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. Um, and so you've studied this kind of stuff in depth. And you've been speaking out a lot about it lately, which is why I'm so glad that you're here, because you can help us kind of put together the pieces for why we need to be having conversations, but we need to be careful with the way in which we have them. Because I think in church, what we're doing right now is we're just saying, let's have the conversation, but we don't have, we're missing part of the puzzle, I think, with many of the people that I talk to because they have an ignorance to history. And I'm not saying I don't, but what I am saying is that if we don't have an understanding of what history is and what has taken place in the past, I already made that quote, so I won't, I won't say it again, but but we could be missing something else that's really going on underneath all of these conversations. At the same time, our politics are leaning further and further left, and we're talking about socialism. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I never thought I would hear politicians endorse a terrorist organization with what's going on in Israel and Palestine. And, and they would say probably, we're not endorsing Hamas, we're endorsing the Palestinian people. Well. I just, I just have to push back a little bit and say, yes, anytime any innocent person dies, that's bad. But those people voted for Hamas to be the leaders of their, of their country. And Hamas is a terrorist organization that is dedicated to the extermination of the Jewish people. Um, so all of that being said is that, is there a historical reference point that it's important for us to understand if we're going to enter into conversations, generally speaking, or if we're just a Christian? 
Right. So World War II, America wins a two-front war. And the Soviets realized they can't beat us on the battlefield. And so their strategy was to rot us from within. Mm -hmm. And so they began a direct effort to infiltrate the country and infiltrate into the opinion molding areas, Hollywood, the pulpit, education, and so forth, and to weaken us from the inside. Uh, this strategy of going on the inside and sowing division goes all the way back to, um, there's Abimelech was the illegitimate son of Gideon, mm -hmm. and Gideon just got done defeating 100,000 Midianites, so they're peaceful in Israel. I mean, they, don't have, they have no enemies. And so Abimelech, though, he goes to the town of Shechem, and he basically invents race identity politics. Hmm. He says, why should the sons of Gideon reign over you? I'm one of you. I am your flesh and your bone. And they say, well, we should support Abimelech because he is our brother. And so they take 70 pieces of silver out of this temple of Balbarith. He hires vain and worthless persons, sort of Antifa, BLM type rioters. Uh, and they go and they riot and they kill all the other sons of Gideon. And then Abimelech usurps power and he makes himself king. And Luckily, somebody threw a millstone over a wall during a battle, and he died. <laughs> but this idea of sowing discord from the inside, yeah. uh, the Greeks had a term for it uh, called the fifth column. So Athens was a democracy, 6,000 citizens. They'd meet in the Agora marketplace and decide what's going to happen. And Alexander the Great's dad, Philip of Macedon, is conquering cities, Thebes, Amphipolis, and so forth. And he takes gold uh, from some of these cities that he conquered and he bribes citizens of Athens. So when they get together in the marketplace, these citizens would stand up and sow division. Wow. And when they say, okay, we got to get so they're hired protesters. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Essentially. And, and they're like, you know, where they say, well, we have to organize our defense against Philip of Macedon. And these paid propagandists would stand up and say, wait, let's not get carried away. Uh, I hear Philip's not such a bad guy. Mm -hmm. I hear he's not conquering these cities. He's liberating them, and, and they actually like him. And, and then these paid propagandists would gather around themselves what Lenin later called useful idiots, yeah. people that believe the lying propaganda. Yep. And it's so, so when finally Philip marches up to the walls of Athens, they're so confused, they just throw open the doors, he takes over. Mm -hmm. And the people of Athens did not get a chance to rule themselves again for over 2,000 years. Yeah. After Ale Philip comes his son Alexander the Great, and then he rules, and then you got these Greek kings, and then you got the, you know, the Roman Empire, and then the Ottoman Empire, and then the, you know, and uh, so finally, um, this idea of going on the inside. Franklin Roosevelt talks about it during World War II, and um, there was um, a little of it during the uh, when Thomas Jefferson loved France, but then during the when the French Revolution was taking place, um, you had infiltrators coming into America, sowing division, and John Adams responded by wanting to pass an Alien and Sedition Act, which wasn't uh, a good idea because of, of the negative on him. But, but the idea of going on in the inside of the country, the British did this. So um, India, quarter of the world's population. In 1714, a British ship lands in Bengal, and the... the King Chieftain is sick, and the guy knows a little medicine, doctors him up, and he says, what can I do in return? And he says, I'd like a trading post. Well, then it turns into a trading fort. 
And then it turns into the British getting involved in local politics and the British noticing that some of them have ancient animosities against each other. Yeah. And the British would give guns to one side, guns to the other side, and they would fan it to, until it broke out into bloodshed. And then in all this chaos, the British would come in to restore order mm -hmm. and they would take over both. And then they would do it again and again and again, and they would disarm them until finally the British took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. Right. And they tried doing it during the American Revolution where they would go to the Indians and who had reached an equilibrium with the settlers, but they would say, hey, you'll get all this land inside with us, and if you scalp these Americans, we'll give you gold. And they, the British in Pensacola gave the Red Stick Creek Indians uh, money for scalps. And so the Indians uh, attacked Fort Mims, Alabama, and scalped 500 people. Hmm. And um, so this uh, got perfected with uh, Karl Marx, and he was at the University of Berlin, and he... Um, took Hegel's idea of dialectic, which is a triangle, a thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and Karl Marx says, okay, the thesis is the status quo in a country. We have to create an antithesis, a problem that's real bad. Yeah. And then everybody will, will be happy to settle for our, an, our answer that's yeah. half as bad. Then that becomes the new thesis starting point. You create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. Then you keep doing this over. And each settling, the people give up a little more of their freedom for security. Yeah. And this, uh, so how would he stir up an antithesis? He would find people with grievances. Uh, and for him, it was mostly economic. And so he'd organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, which mm -hmm. is the um, working class against the business owners. He called it critical theory. That was his term where you would find this division and then, so patriotism is the enemy. You get people to identify with a subgroup and then you pit the subgroups against each other to sow division on the inside. Uh, you know, sort of like Lucifer sowed division in heaven, yeah. right? He wanted to get a third of the angels. So then, so these socialists would organize the uh, Catholics against the Protestants, the Muslims against the Christians, the, uh, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda, right? So they're going into this Congo-Rwanda area, and the black Africans there sort of saw themselves all as one people, and these colonizers would measure their craniums and measure their heights, and they would say, you're a Hutu and you're a Tutsi. Basically, artificially created races. And they identified with these, and then they would pit them against each other to break out in genocide, and then this colonizing power would end up coming in and taking over. Yeah. And um, so this is a strategy that uh, is been perfected, and it's being used in front of us. Um, after World War II, uh, it took a great step forward. And if you want, I can share some of those. Yeah. Well, before we do that, let's just step back because I think, um, what you're saying is something that kind of has struck me too, because when I see communism or socialism kind of, uh, being asserted as an example, I never see it being done in history. Now I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I never see it being done in history outside of duress. Would you say that that's true? That they're always the predicate for socialism slash communism, uh, is always crisis. Would you say that that's correct? Right, right. And even Castro said, if enemies don't exist, they need to be created. Mm, yeah. So you can't organize your people against something unless there's something to organize against. And yeah. so you can create a phantom enemy, you know, a white supremacy that really is not there, but you want to create it so that you can organize your people against it. Yeah. And then, um, and they do another tactic called psychological projection, where they do the crime and they blame it on you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
this is every little kid does this, right? I didn't start the fight. You did. Yeah. yeah. The blame, and then a wife beater will beat up his wife. It was your fault. You provoked me. And yeah. Sharia Muslim men will rape a woman. It was your fault because you tempted me. So it's blame shifting where the attacker blames the victim, and it's gotten into politics. Mm-hmm. So David Axelrod was the campaign manager for a previous president, uh, two presidents ago, and uh, he was on NPR Radio 2014. David Axelrod said, "In Chicago politics, we have a tradition where you throw a brick through your own campaign office window." Wow. And then you call a press conference to accuse your opponent. Hmm. So you do the crime and you blame your innocent party. Why? Because their name gets associated with the crime in the media. And they've got to backpedal, backpedal, backpedal to show that they're not. Meanwhile, you get a pass. And if it ever gets pointed back, oh, you did it. By that time, the water's muddied. The public doesn't know who to trust. You get a pass. And so, for example, let's say there's a candidate colluding with Russia, giving away a fifth of the U.S. uranium to Russia in exchange for $145 million contribution to her Clinton Foundation. She wants to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. No specifics. And, uh, and so the media drills it, and, and most people don't think below the headlines and think, oh, whether smoke, there's fire, his name's always with. And then if it ever gets pointed back at her, again, by that time, the water's muddied, the public doesn't know who to trust, they say they're all a bunch of crooks, and she gets a pass. Okay, so I know this may be a little bit too, too, um, too direct, and there's probably multiple answers to this, but maybe the answer is much more simple than this. Um, I know at this point there's probably people who are trying to excuse and push this away, but where there is smoke, there is fire. So we have to figure out where the fire's at, right? There's obviously smoke. So I want people just, our audience members, even if they have a question as to whether or not um, uh, there is an underlying kind of, maybe not even covert, but at least underlying motivating force behind these things, I want them to at least ask the question. So my question to you then is, is, where is this coming from? Where is the desire to create crisis in our nation coming from? I'm obviously younger than you, and I um, don't know if there's been things to the degree that are happening right now in our nation in the past, but it sure seems like something recently has shifted. And I don't know, I I mean, I'm going to make a crazy suggestion because I'm not using facts. I'm just saying, for example, I don't know if it's because Trump was in office or what, but what do you think is causing the shift and who is behind if there is a force behind uh, the desire to create a sense of crisis or even a sense of unhappiness? Because these actors probably know if you can make people unsettled, if you can make them unhappy, then the only thing that, uh, then people will do whatever they can to, to grab, gravitate toward happiness. The, the way I like to kind of maybe explain this is we're talking a lot about Orwell lately, but I don't think we need Orwell without Huxley. And Huxley talks about pleasure in our infinite appetite for distraction. So I don't think that you have an oppressive government like you do in 1984 in Orwell without of people who have an infinite appetite for distraction and pleasure. So if you can stoke people's unhappiness, they will do whatever they can to, re- to return to pleasure. They'll try to find that path of least resistance. So what is behind this, these notions, this, this created sense of urgency of crisis in America, or is there an in particular entity that you can point to? Yeah, those are great questions, Reed. And, you know, history is the study of human nature yeah. over time. So the, the studying of what motivates one human being. And throughout history, it's been the bribe or the bullet, the silver or the lead. You do what 
I say you get something, you know, the kid, you yeah. do what's right, I can give you a piece of candy. Yeah. You don't do what's right, I'll, I'll spank you. You're not going to punishment. And so uh, how do you move a population? You do the, the same thing on a larger scale. Um, one of the periods that I think can address that is after World War II, Germany, France, and England gave up their former colonies and they formed brand new countries. India, Egypt, Israel, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Hungary, all these different countries, and they elected brand new leaders, and it looked hopeful, but then the Soviet Union decided that it wanted to make them into a satellite to the Soviet Union. So they would send KGB agents into the countries, and they would identify groups. Mm. And so they would um, identify them ethnically, Bosnian, Croat, Serbs, uh, religiously, Sunni, Shia, Orthodox, racially, uh, you know, black, white, whatever, and then um, uh, ethnically. And and then they would... And upon class, too, correct? Yeah. And, and then they would begin to label them victims and oppressors. Yeah. Haves and have-nots. Yeah. And they would then pit them against each other. Yep. And they would call it a critical economic theory. Hmm. Where one was rich and the other poor, and those terrible, terrible rich people, and or you know, critical race theory or whatever it is, but but it's this idea that you you break them into subgroups and then you cause one uh, to label one as the victim, the other as the oppressor, and then they would stage protests that they would intentionally stir into riots and violence and bloodshed hmm. and destruction of property, and then the people of the country would begin to panic. And it would they would spread it, and then because once pe once there's bloodshed, then people's emotions are involved. Yeah, right. I lost my friend, you know. So it's like these they're the bad ones, and so then um, they co-opted the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all the problems. Mm -hmm. And then they would nurture weak links in the military. And when the country gets panicky and confused enough, they would do a coup or rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And uh, they did this over and over. 45 countries fell to communism this way. And the president is Eisenhower. He does nothing because he thinks the United Nations that he helped form will bring world peace. But the next president is Eisenhower, and he's faced with a choice. Do nothing and let these countries fall or do something and fight fire with fire. And so when Iran sided with the Soviet Union in, in 1953, uh, they nationalized the oil industry in Iran. And you think, well, big deal. Well, wait a second. Britain has no oil. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. Hmm. And so when the British Petroleum has, there's no oil, Britain goes to Eisenhower and says, help. Eisenhower approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leaders, Operation Ajax. And they send over CIA operative uh, Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, expert in foreign languages, and he, in Tehran, begins to or, uh, recruit mobsters and gangsters and radical imams, and yeah, he stages okay, okay. protests and riots that they attack mosques and they have it blamed on Mazadek, the Iranian leader, and they co-opt the media. And when the country gets panicky enough, they put Mazadek under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies, and they replace him with a shop. And the Shah loved America and did have a rightful claim to the throne anyway. But the CIA did the same thing in Guatemala in 1954, the Congo 1960, Dominican Republic. And, and, so, uh, and the KGB did the same thing with 
Brezhnev helping Yasser Arafat to start the PLO and bring division in the Middle East, and Brezhnev helping Castro to take over Cuba, and hundreds of coup attempts in Latin South America and in Africa, and this is called the Cold War. It's a subject of every spy novel, right? You go to a right. third world country, you run into the Russians, the KGB, and then you run into the CIA, and they're all going to do an assassination. And <laughs> the only difference is this time, these tactics are being used on our own soil. Yeah. And we saw the co-opting taking place under President Obama. So, so let's just stop right there and just say, all right, so we see, let, let's connect the dots a little bit. We see riots and looting with BLM. Okay, so... If it's about a racial reckoning, okay, let's have that conversation. However, it's a little fishy that we have the founders of this organization that we all know at this point, according to Barack Obama's Justice Department, was founded on a lie to begin with, with the Michael Brown shooting. And then we know that they are also trained Marxist, that one of them was discipled, I, I believe it's colors, I don't, I don't wanna speak too quick because I can't remember, but one of them was trained, trained by Angela Davis, who in the late 80s, I believe, uh, ran on the Communist Party ticket in, uh, in America as the VP candidate. Um, and so we see these kind of like these, these things happening and we're starting to talk about socialism more and more and more. And then you see Bernie Sanders rising up and AOC and the rest of those squad people rising up and talking about socialism. So are, are we trying to say then, let's just be really direct, are we trying to say then that there are socialists that are in our government right now or people maybe even behind the scenes that we do not know that are trying to change America from, a, from the democracy that we have right now to a socialist government. Yes, yeah, definitely. And uh, Patrice Cullors, Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, and they identify themselves as transsexual activists. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of them trained with Eric uh, Mann and uh, another Mark Rudd. These are different names of people with the... Uh, the Weather Underground, and the 1960s and 70s, they bombed police departments with nail bombs, and they bombed fire departments, and um, they uh, trained what we're seeing today with, with the Black Lives Matter. So it's a uh, strategy that's being played out in front of us. The people that actually think it has something to do with the issues, uh, they're basically useful. The people that actually think it has to do with a Confederate flag or a statue or hands up, don't shoot or uh, Occupy Wall Street or safe spaces or you offend me with the pronoun or what. Those are sub issues. Yeah. The main issue I, I've talked to people who witnessed um, where you would have like the Charlottesville uh, rioting, right? Yeah, I heard you say that. Both sides get off the same bus. Uh -huh. Both sides travel to the event, get off the same bus. Some dress as white supremacists, others dress as the other side, and they put on a show. And it's it's called optics. So you so you believe that there's actually kind of what you already said that you kind of situated in history that there are people right now who are being paid to. Um, to show up to these things, maybe kind of Antifa type people, to show up at these uh, these protests and then actively maybe even riot or loot, but at least actively protest and um, espouse some type of grievance. Paid protesters. Right. So when all those riotings were taking place, there's video 
of pallets of bricks being dropped off yeah. in areas where there's no construction, but it just happens to be right where they're planning to have one of their protests. I spoke in Emporia, Kansas, and they said, yeah, they were wanting to have a peaceful protest here, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, suddenly there was a, a pallet of bricks dropped off right where they were going to be doing their peaceful protest. And he says, enough of the people got involved and they stopped them and didn't allow them to do that. This takes a tremendous amount of planning. And it's so the whole NSA was put in place to track domestic terrorists. So either the NSA is totally clueless or they've been co-opted. So what we're talking about now is the deep state. And for those who don't know what the deep state is, is basically that there's covert government operatives in the government. And, and we start talking about this stuff, and now it does sound like a spy novel. It sounds like we're being conspiracy theorists. But, but I think only if you don't understand history, if you don't understand that this is straight from the socialist playbook, which is why I think what you're doing is so, so vitally important right now, because you know the socialist playbook, you know it all the way back to Plato, and that's what your book is, is all about. But, but I started to notice this trend as well. Um, and it started to say, make me realize, okay, when, when things start to look a little too similar to what's taken place in the past, I think it's a, an intellectually honest person has to stop and say, is this the same thing? And specifically, like I, I saw Lenin rise up uh, as the monarchy's falling in Russia and there's unrest and they don't know what government they're gonna, gonna have in Russia. I saw him rise up and say during uh, World War I, kill your generals because they've been oppressing you. And, and this is the first time that kind of these underclass people in Russia have been able to have arms because they're so poor. Uh, and he's trying to look for anything that he can point his finger at to get somebody to start a revolution. And then of course, Stalin takes his play, place, takes the playbook from Lenin, and then makes the kulaks kill their landowners and says, you've been oppressed by your landowners. And really all he's trying to do is he's trying to create industrialization and get rid of all the landowners so that that land can become Stalin's. And you see all this and you just like, it's constant, repeated in history over and over and over again. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And you have these dictators rising up within the government to say, um, really, behind the scenes, I want power, but the way in which they grab power is by convincing people to have some type of grievance. And so, um, so is there a deep state that is producing these things in America? Yeah, I've talked to enough people that had worked with the CIA. They've been in Latin South America, Africa, and they would be involved in setting fire to villages and making it look like the enemy set the fire so all the people in the village would come to them mm -hmm. and then they could set, or, organize them against the other side. Yeah. And um, uh, these are, uh, unfortunately, strategies. Now, for the most part, these were done on other countries' soils right. and we were doing it to mobilize against the Soviet Union. And so it had a an underlying uh, patriotic motivation behind it, although questionable in certain instances. But Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA. Uh, his brother, John Foster Dulles, was the Secretary of State. And so they're fighting the Cold War. Uh, they need to mobilize America because after you know World War II, we're sort of wanting to go back to life as usual, and we're not in. We're letting these countries fall to the communists. Mm -hmm. You read about the Marshall Plan in Europe, and you read his writings, and 
Marshall goes over to Europe and he sees in France that the people are starving because of the, well, you know, the war caused such damage. And the communists were coming in there saying, you're starving because of the capitalists. Yeah. And he said, France was about to fall to communists. So he said, we need to flood a bunch of money over there and help these people hurry up and get on their feet again so they don't become subjected to that. Um, unfortunately, it got the use to people getting in handouts, and that turned into the social dependency programs that they have over there where you know things are handed out from the government. But nevertheless, it's kept it uh, from going communist right away. But um, the idea is that they were taking advantage of the grievances that yeah. people were in. In you know the Bible has uh, Psalms one thirty three it says how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity but Proverbs six says six things the Lord hates and the last is he that soweth discord amongst the brethren and so the whole Marxist strategy is you have to sow discord yeah you you d divide a family divide a church you divide a business you divide a country by by sowing discord and you find people that it's in their personal best interest you make it appear that it's in their personal best interest to do a certain uh, course, and and they do play tough. Uh, if you do what they say, you'll get promoted. Uh, they'll run you as a candidate for president the next time around if you you know betray the country this time around. Uh, and um, uh, or if you don't do it, then you could have one of your loved ones killed. Mm. Or uh, you know, there's the um, the uh, uh, certain. Past, past, past president, uh, and there was a body count list that was circulating the internet of all these people that were close associates with uh, this couple, and it, the numbers of them that met a mysterious death, they even came up with the term suicided. <laughs> which means that they were uh, eliminated and made it look like a suicide, but it, it, it defies all statistics. It's not Hill and Billery, is it? <laughs> that, that you could have, you know, two people with dozens and dozens, I mean, of close people around them that met untimely deaths, that it's, it defies, and you compare that to all the other presidents, President yeah. Bush, President, they don't have that many people that they knew in a close level that, yeah. that met, um, so, so this is most, there, there's a quote from William Henry Harrison, the ninth president, and he saw right off the bat, there were some that wanted to consolidate power into the federal government. At the beginning of the country, you had two basic parties. Uh, one wanted a strong defense, and so they wanted a strong federal government so that they could have a navy and could have a stable currency so we could trade internationally. All right, that's legitimate reasons. Mm -hmm. The other wanted a weaker central government because they were afraid of the slippery slope that we'd move back to what the King George III was, centralized power uh, in the government. And so you had big government, small government. Right, the first party was the Republican Democrat Party in Jefferson, and the other was called the Federalist Party. And they sort of, um, and over the centuries, they oscillated on the different issues. But you more or less have one wanting a bigger government and the other wanting a smaller government. This sort of changed under uh, George W. Bush, Carl uh, Rove, and the others, and they just simply swapped out for a, a big. Republican government. So now both sides are wanting a big centralized government. Um, if, it, if we're in charge of it, then it's okay to have a big government. But that's that's been a, a seismic shift. Yeah. Uh, Trump said, no, 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 we want to transition government from Washington, D.C. back to you. There's a dilemma, and it is 
so the most common form of government in world history is kings. And so I literally spent a year uh, researching from the beginning of the invention of writing Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley around 3300 BC, you have kings. Kings of Sumeria, kings of Babylon, kings of Assyria, uh, 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, uh, uh, Cyrus of Persia, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Tildon. As the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, they can kill more people. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of killing with a rock, you kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a big, long, phalanx spear the, the Greeks had or a scimitar sword the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese had. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen, selfish human nature of Cain, Kill, and Abel, just magnified. St. Augustine, St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. Mm-hmm. So you put some kids on a playground, one is the bully hogging yeah. the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. You right? put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief. Put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. So the default setting for human societal structure is one person ends up becoming... But it starts off um, in an interesting way. So the first invention ever was the plow. Cain was a tiller of the soil, and then people started hitting each other with it, and it turned into weapons. And then people began to feel insecure on their farms, and so they would gravitate together for protection, and they formed the first cities. Right. You get people together, somebody's a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And everyone says, hey, you be our captain. Sort of like in Israel, they went to Jabesh, yeah. right, and said, you be our captain. And, um, and so they fight, they, they win, and, and afterwards, everybody's grateful to this captain. And they uh, sort of give him deference, and, and then he has sons. And then everybody treats the sons really nice. And before you know it, it turns into this family becomes sort of a political family. They're sort of in charge. And then they begin to want to uh, uh, claim to own everything. And if, and if you're in the city and you don't like that family, they're going to be tempted to want to push you out and ostracize you. And, and so everybody wants to kiss up to this family. And, and so that's how so basically a king is a glorified gang leader yeah and and as the centuries would go on the king of england became the biggest king that planet earth had ever seen sun never set on the british empire australia new zealand hong kong british guyana canada barbados bermuda jamaica you know uh, india had a quarter of the world's population the british controlled and so he was like a one world government guy he was a globalist with him at the top, and America's founders decided they didn't like a globalist telling us what to do, so they broke away, flipped it, and made the people the king. Mm-hmm. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. Yeah. And if it wasn't for a 3,000-mile ocean that separated us from the king, if it wasn't for 150 years of Europe being the chessboard that the kings were fighting over and America was an afterthought, like, just don't cost me money, but you can just run yourselves over there. And we got a chance to practice self-government. And it, if it wasn't for France getting in the war, the second biggest power, and that gave Britain a run for its money, so Britain and I had to stretch its military around the world. It was, a, it was a miracle that all these different ingredients came together for us to be able to break away from the most powerful king on the planet yeah. and, and have founders that, instead of like Mexico... So Mexico broke away from the king of Spain, but they had the, their general was Iturbide. And what did he do? He made himself emperor of Mexico. <laughs> right. And so the poor people are like, oh, wait a second, I thought we were fighting a revolution, you know. Uh, Higaldo, the priest, you know, that they rallied 90,000 of these peasants, and, and they thought they were going to be like America. And lo and behold, they just get switched out for another king. Mm-hmm. And then you got this scenario where, you know, he ends up, 
wanting to stay in power, and so he gets oppressive. And so you have some champion, you know, Santa Ana, that says, well, let's get rid of him. Well, he gets in, and then he puts all of his cronies in, and then they become oppressive. Yeah. And then you get Benito Juarez says, well, he's corrupt. Let me get here of him. And then Benito Juarez gets in, and he puts all of his cronies in, and then he becomes oppressive. And then you got um, Porfino, Porfirio Diaz, and then he comes, drives out, you know, uh, Benito Juarez. And, and it's one after the other after the other. And it's the same. You can go yeah. to the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Yeah, by the way, I do have to just insert this here, too. There was a documentary, and forgive me, I cannot remember the name of it, but it was uh, very uh, well-known, got good, really high circulation, but it was about um, a kind of almost civil war against the Sinaloa cartel um, among people who took up arms and just got tired of them coming into their village. Um, so they started getting some kind of cultural power and stuff like that, and then they um, and they started killing uh, drug dealers and drug members and stuff like that and fighting back against corrupt uh, police officers and that kind of thing. And then they just took the place of, of the members of the Sinaloa cartel and became the new kind of like Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. So yeah, so there's this cyclical nature to history. So the dragon slayer becomes a dragon. Absolutely. And, and if we don't pay attention to that, then all we do is we become ignorant for not paying attention to history. So I think that there's a lot of people, and, and this is kind of what I want to close with. There's a lot of people who are resistant to have these conversations because it may seem far-fetched to them. I don't know the right way to communicate it, but it, but it just seems like when we talk about deep state, when we talk about uh, uh, political corruption, and we talk about uh, the rise of socialism and uh, an undercurrent of those trying to change democracy into socialism, I, a lot of people kind of just say, well, I don't know. But, but all you have to do is open a history book and it becomes very, very clear. And I think that's kind of the eye-opening moment for me was that it became very, very clear that this is not something that is new. It only seems strange to the person who does not know history, but anybody who knows history realizes this is something that has taken place over and over and over again. And just to situate that within the realm of socialism and, and then the realm of Marx, Marx said, this is co quoting from the Communist Manifesto, he said that for the revolution to begin, that it would be necessary for the overthrow of all existing conditions. That's what he said. So for Marxism to work, it, it, it is reliance upon the overthrow of all existing conditions. So in other words, you have to do things like defund the police. Because if you defund the police, well then, you're taking away one of the backbones of an institution that makes America safe. If you can put that into crisis, and then you can start undermining other institutions in America, then all of a sudden you, you're creating the seedbed for, for a revolution. Now, I, I want to I stick with Marx just for a second, because ultimately, the way I want to end this is I want to talk about this in terms of Christianity. You're a man of faith, I'm a man of faith, we believe Jesus is Lord, and that he is the answer for everything that we'll go through in life. So the first thing I would say is that for those who hear this and they have a little bit of cynical attitude, this is not fear-mongering. This is not that we're afraid that um, God's not on the throne and that he's not in control. It's rather this. I believe Christians have a moral obligation when truth is in jeopardy um, to, to stand up and do something about it, when the gospel is in jeopardy to stand up and do something about it. And we are not just experiencing a political upheaval. I believe we're experiencing, existen experiencing an existential crisis. And I believe that if Christians do not stand up, read a history book, become aware of what's happening in our nation, that um, one, of the, one of the things will happen that we also see in history. Christians uh, took a stand. You've got Martin Luther, you've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've got men of God who said, no, enough is enough. We are not going to allow this to take place. Um, 
And, and we will see the reverse of that if we don't open up a history book, if we don't open our eyes. We will see um, that things happen, uh, travesties happen, injustices happen uh, at a greater pace maybe in our generation or in the history of America um, if we are not willing to stand up and do something about it. So I guess what I'm saying is it feels like to me that Christians may be the only hope that America has uh, for the onslaught that may be coming for it if uh, these things continue to happen at pace. So what's your thoughts in terms of connecting the dots? Can you help us connect the dots for why Christians should be concerned with what is happening on the news media, what is happening in the world? Uh, those are great questions, Reed. And uh, if I were to sum up America in one word, it's individual. Mm-hmm. So Western civilization, going back to Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they got this law that says you individually are created in the image of God, and God is not a respecter of persons, and so you have a worth and an identity all by yourself. Uh, that's what Western civil is, that you're equal to everybody else. The, wherever there's a king, there's no concept of equality. If you're friends with the king, you're, you're an insider. You get special benefits. If you're not friends with the king, you don't get that. And if you're an enemy of the king, the king will be tempted to want to shut you up. So it's a hierarchical society. Yeah. And so America gave birth to these ideas that you have a worth and an identity, not because you can contribute to society, uh, not because you're a Muslim male, not because you're a Brahmin in the highest caste in India, just because you're made in the image of God. You don't even have to do anything, and you're made in the image of God, and you're worth the exact same as everybody else. These are novel concepts. And uh, so they're worth defending, and the uh, in times of crises, people surrender their freedoms, and so the other side wants there to be crisis. I, I also think in a big picture... Um, God holds the, 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 the final cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system called the census. Mm. I guarantee if he could have had access to cameras and uh, social credit scores and drones. tracking your you know, drones and tracking your email and Google searches and everything, he would have tracked you that way. But the best they had at that time was a census. Mm-hmm. Well, that census required Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem to be counted, and Jesus was born. So it fulfilled prophecy. So so the devil does what he is doing, but God has the ultimate plan. So whenever you see a crisis and people panic and surrender their freedoms to the government who promises to protect them, uh, at the same time, whenever there's a crisis, you'll have people turning to Christ. Yeah, Hmm. And so there'll be a revival. And so it sort of goes hand in hand, and it happens at the same time. So we're praying for a great revival. Yeah, it may come on the heels of a great crisis. You read the first Great Awakening in America? Well, it happened during the French and Indian War, uh, right, where you had the, a war going on. Uh, and then you had the second Great Awakening. Well, that happened during the Barbary Pirates, and it happened during, you know, the threatened war with France. And, uh, and then 1857, there was the Layman's Prayer Revival. The economy was terrible. Thousands of people were out of work. And in New York, Jeremiah Lamphere. Uh, put the sign out in front of his business, come in at noon and pray. Hmm. And like nobody's there in the last 15 minutes, a couple guys come in. 
The next week, they have a couple dozen. The next week, a couple hundred. Next week, a couple thousand. Until pretty soon, they had tens of thousands of people praying at noon in New York, spread to Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles, all across the country. Mm-hmm. It's called the Layman's Prayer Revival. But it was during this time of crisis, right before the Civil War. And then you, you saw that the same thing happening with the World War One, and then you had Billy Sunday and these different... Pre- so it's this idea that it's in time to crisis, people turn to Christ. Yeah. And if you think of what are the stories we love best in the Bible, it's when God's people are in a crisis, you know, and God raises up little nobodies who are small in their own eyes, but big in faith and courage. So you got Moses, I mean, Pharaoh, whatever the dynasty was, the 12th or 18th or whatever, but they invented chariots, metal wheeled chariots. And this was the F-16 of the day. Yeah. Instead of big wooden ox cart wheels, right? These things were fast, and they had these, you know, swords, and they they could uh, slice you in half when they're riding, you know, at full speed. And uh, and here's Moses, totally unarmed, and he just stands there, holds out the staff, and says, "God, I, we're, I'm trusting you to use me to deliver your people, and the waves come in and swallow up favors. These are the stories we like. And God evidently likes them too. He lets the situation get like that. Yeah. Why? So that he, he gets the glory from it. Mm-hmm. And it's not Hugh, you and I. And um, so this is just our turn. You know, when you read a lot of history, you see that, gee, every generation has a crisis. Yeah. Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, bubonic plague, Spanish flu. You know, there's always a crisis. And the crisis is, is an opportunity for the people that are alive at the time to show what they're made of. Yeah. And I, um, you know, the story of Abraham, God certainly knew what was in Abraham's heart, but he wanted to see Abraham be willing to take his son to the top of Mount Moriah and be willing to sacrifice him. Yeah. And then he stopped him, of course, but it's like, oh, God knows what's in my heart. Yes, he does. And he wants <laughs> to see some actions and yeah. hear some words out of your mouth. And the crisis is the opportunity for you to respond. Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. Well, why? Well, it gives you an opportunity to minister to the poor. And um, imagine a guy watching TV, uh, and you come up to him and say, hey, when was the last time you told your wife you love her? Uh, I can't remember, but she knows my heart. It's like, okay. Uh, When was the last time you did anything to show your wife you love her? Uh, I can't remember, but she knows my heart. It's like... Dude, we need to have a little talk, (laughs) right? And if if a wife wants to hear some words and see some action, certainly God does. And so the crisis of the air is the opportunity for you to show some actions. And so when the early church was being persecuted, what did they pray? Lord, you see their threats, grant us boldness, Mm -hmm. right? So yes, there's crisis, but this is our, the good Lord decided for us to be alive at this time. Yeah. And guess what? If we get through this crisis, there'll be another one. We get through that one, there'll be another one. There's always going to. Jesus says the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. Yeah. So this is our crisis, and it's our turn to rise up and and defend the defenseless, love the unlovable, stand up for the innocent. Right? It's this is our chance, and he's got a different thing for each person to do, but he's got something for everybody to do. Absolutely. Yeah. This is not our time to follow the culture with the narrative that they wish to hoist upon us. This is our time to exalt the narrative that we've known for far too long, but have not probably preached in the way that we should, certainly the common Christian. Because we know the uh, we know where racial reckoning happened. It happened 2,000 years ago on Calvary, where God destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, and made all people equal in the eyes of God, uh, regardless of their sin and regardless of their past, so that if you come to Christ, there can be redemption and, and hope. 
Um, and, and we just have to get back in the saddle. So if anything, I am praying and, and I hope that this serves as a wake up call for us to, uh, not to jump on the woke bandwagon, not to jump on any bandwagon, but to jump back into scripture and preach the things that we should have been preaching all along. And I guess for me, it was a wake up call for me personally, but it was also kind of just a, a wake up call for just looking at other peers, other young pastors that are around my age and a little bit younger and just seeing how cultural we've become so that when these kind of things happen, we're not preaching the gospel, we're preaching, you know, uh, we're just preaching mere acceptance for gender gender. ID, ID, identity and, and mere acceptance for uh, the talking points of Black Lives Matter. And there may even be some merit to some of that. But I, what, I'm, what I'm more concerned with is that I think it's an indication more than anything that the church has become more of a cultural institution than a Christian institution, than a biblical institution. Yeah. And if we, don't, uh, if we don't pick up the mantle of the prophets of old in this day and age and be different than the culture, we're going we're gonna to fall victim to the, to the ebbs and flows of the culture. And I, and I just want to say this, because I, I know you may have something to say about that. I do want to say this to anybody who may be listening who is not a Christian, because I found myself through this connecting with people who have similar concerns who are not in the church. And I would just say this. You will fall victim to the ebbs and flow of the culture. You will consistently be apprehended by a sense of fear, uh, a sense of frustration, and a sense of, uh, of anger, perhaps, with what's going on in the nation if you don't have an existential anchor. Because we are experiencing an existential crisis. This is why we cannot say, oh, well, we're called to the prayer closet, and we're just called to preach the gospel, and just re- lean back on platitudes in the church and forget that, hey, we're called to the world to make a difference in the world. Um, we, we can't just lean back on platitudes at this point in time. We gotta lean upon Jesus, who is the only anchor strong enough to hold us during this time. And for those who are not Christians, you may not think that that's Jesus, but history shows us here too, that you can either be a victim of, of the culture, you can be a victim of history, or you can make a difference. And so often, I'm not gonna say exclusively, but so often that, has, that have been men and, and women of God who have stood up on a principle, the word of God, and, and made a difference. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, my mind's like going 100 different directions of <laughs> what I could say next. Sorry. <clears throat> but um, no, that's, that's really good insight, Reed. I'm very impressed. You know, the um, first three centuries of Christianity, they were persecuted by the Roman government, who's, and they had to hide, and they met in catacombs. I yeah. went to school in Rome for six months, and we toured the different catacombs. And you'd go down some little road, and uh, there'd be like a... Um, tour guide would it's a little iron gate almost looked like a drainage ditch and he'd unlock it and you'd crawl back go back about 30 yards open up into a little room that was carved out with passageways going different directions and first century graffiti on the walls and you know candle marks on the ceiling and this was the christian experience for three centuries and every now and then they get raided and they get fed to the lions and so forth then constantine stops the persecutions christians come out and then Constantine decides to build big marble basilicas, and so now you're going to church. And so the new little kids, their experience with Christianity is going to a big marble basilica. And then you have an emperor, Theodosius, in 379 AD, and he's a Christian. He goes to church in Milan, Italy, the pastor of St. Ambrose. But Theodosius decides that he is going to outlaw paganism. Now, you look at it, they were still having pagan temples with temple prostitutes and still doing exposure of unwanted infants, their version of abortion. And and so, you know, yeah, he was doing good. But what happened was once he outlawed paganism, you had a flood of nominal people that 
flooded into these marble basilicas and would raise their hands and say, okay, whatever the state doctrine is, okay, I believe it, you know. But they, they never, and in one century, you go from an intensely personal relationship with God, personal relationship with others, to this impersonal big marble building with a whole bunch of people that are there just because they don't want to get persecuted by the Roman government right. for being a, uh, you know. And so this change happened. So after a while, a movement started called pietism. And that said, look, going to church is more than going to a big marble thing, lifting your hands, say, I believe whatever the government tells me to believe. It's a personal experience with Jesus. Right. And so this pietism movement, in a sense, swung the pendulum over to the other side. It's, it's personal. Matter of fact, they took it to an extreme and said, it's so personal. Leave the church and go out in a cave and be a hermit for the rest of your life. Or give away all your money and live as an obscure poor person. In other words, it's you know, or go sell everything and live in a monastery so nobody will ever see you again. Yeah. And and so the the pen, so there's a middle of the road, right? It's personal, but he wants you to stay involved with the group. This happened again uh, with Martin Luther. He had a personal revelation that the just shall live by faith. 1517, right? And he's so personal to him, he stands up to the Pope and the Charles V of Spain, and he says, unless you can prove me wrong from Scripture, here I stand, so help me God. Yeah. Very personal to him. Well, guess what? Some German princes want to break away from Rome, and they say, this is our chance. Kingdom of mine, you're all now Lutheran. And the people say, okay, king, we're Lutheran. Uh, what do we believe? <laughs> so for the people in these kingdoms, it's not the same personal experience that Martin Luther had. It's just agreeing with a new state doctrine. Yeah. And so this revival movement starts again called pietism. That says, look, more than just doctrine, you have to have a personal experience with Jesus. When you do, your life will change. Mm -hmm. You'll no longer do the worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in government. Wait, wait, what was that last thing? <laughs> yeah, if the government's filled full of worldly, worldly people, and if you're really Christian, you'll withdraw. And it was, and so, and there were even princes that would donate to the pietists. So they'd teach their people not to get involved in the prince's business so he could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. And so, again, you have this pendulum swinging. It's personal, but then they want to go so personal that you don't even vote, right? Sort of like the, the Mennonites and all those other different groups, you know, the, the, um, the Amish. Um, the and so, oyster. Yeah. So, so the idea is there's a middle of the road where it is intensely personal, but we need to stay involved with other people in society, be the salt of the earth, uh, ministering God's yeah, love right. to a heart hurting and dying world, standing up for the defenseless. There's even a verse that says, if you see an innocent person being drug off to their death and you do nothing, the Lord knows that you knew and he will hold you accountable. Mm. So it's like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're you know, killing babies and I'm just going to turn the other way. It's like, yeah. no, the Lord knew that you saw that. And, and, and silence in law, silence equals consent. Yeah, right now we're experiencing a lot of compassionate language that I think is really just co a cover for cowardice. Uh, and I think one of the things that uh, that is so like a, such a sensitive thing right now in the church is that if like if we try to have certain conversations, it is immediately assumed that it's just not compassionate, or that uh, or that it's mean spirited or whatever. That to say to a person who is a homosexual 
that, hey, I don't believe that God made you that way, and actually I think there's a better way, is not mean spirited or unkind. I mean, we've got people in the church today right now, for crying out loud, leaders of Christian movements who are saying that the, uh, the homosexual life that that couple enjoys is part of God's grace, and, uh, and, and all sorts of other things. And maybe the, there's nothing new about any of that, but the reality is, is that the most compassionate thing you can do is, is to preach the truth, the truth of God, the truth in love. Um, it's the most compassionate thing that you can do for people, not tiptoe around it, not hide behind little cowardly statements like we don't have important conversations uh, in public. We do that at the dinner table instead of just saying, no, this is what we believe and this is why we believe it. Um, so we need to do that more and more and more. So thank you for doing that and thank you for, on the regular, helping us you know, understand this world in, in the context of God's great redemptive story throughout history. Well, um, I don't know how much time we have, but if, if there is a few more minutes, I can yeah, throw in a couple more Yeah, For you, there is. Um, but yeah, their tactic is to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. Hmm. Yeah. You think, what? So yeah, yeah, if you're a Christian, you'll tolerate this alternative sexual behavior. Well, question, would Jesus tolerate, would Jesus teach that? Jesus said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. Mm -hmm. And he says, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one, and that anything outside of that union is sin. So they're, they're saying, if you're really Christian, you'll let him teach stuff to little children that Jesus would never teach to little children. So in other words, if you're really Christian, you won't act like Christ. Mm -hmm. And Christians are buying this. It's sort of interesting, but in a certain way, woke is the opposite of being born again. Mm, yeah. Uh, socialism is the opposite of New Testament Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right, And so instead of it being you are now loving one another and you're going to do unto the poor as you would have them do unto you, now the government takes away your free will yeah. and they arbitrarily take the money and they redistribute it. And the, the dilemma is that... Um, can, you, can you say that again? Because I think that that's such a loaded statement and I think that that may be one of the... Uh, one of the more important things that we talked about, that socialism is antithetical to Christianity. Now, I know there's probably a lot there, but can you, can you wrap that up and summarize that so people understand that this is why Christians need to be outspoken about some of the socialist agenda that's happening in our nation? So why is it antithetical? So the early, the, they come out of Egypt, they come into the promised land, God gives property to each family. Uh-huh. Individual ownership. Individual ownership of property. If you own property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Mm -hmm. And then you can be moved upon in your heart to voluntarily give away some of that stuff. That is called charity. Mm -hmm. Well, Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. Mm -hmm. So if you do not own any property, how can you give anything away? Right. What are you going to do, steal from someone and now you're a thief, yeah. right? You know, you can't give away something that's not yours. That's not charity. So would you say that it exchanges big G God for little g government and tries to take the place of God? Uh, definitely. The government wants to take the place of God. And even Hegel, who was one of the socialist writers in Germany, says the state is God walking on earth. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those that curse you. Turn the other cheek. The woke religion says, cancel your enemies. Uh -huh. Get them to lose their jobs. Have them banned from the internet. Yeah. Get their products kicked out of the stores. 
Yeah, it's the Jews bringing that woman caught in the act of adultery, saying, "We caught her in the act of adultery. Let, let's let's stone her." And Jesus says, "Who's going to throw the first stone?" Well, anybody without sin, you could do it. Yeah, and so it's it. So the treatment of your enemy. Yeah. In Christianity, you love your enemy. In the woke religion, you hate your enemy. Yeah. And socialism too, just to couch those things together, because it's yeah, you put your your enemies in gulags. Yeah, and then um, the Our Father who art in heaven says, "Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those." And then the next line says, "For if you do not forgive those who have offended you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you." Whereas wokeism and socialism says, "You don't forgive." Yeah, you make them pay. You make them pay reparations. You make them bow down and kiss your feet and kneel on the, the public sidewalk and about you know, right. And use sympathy as a platform to do it, to justify it. Yeah, and so, so the, the wokeism harbors offense. Mm-hmm. And if you're harboring offenses, you're not going to heaven. Yeah. According to Jesus, if you do not forgive from your heart those that have offended you, you will not be forgiven. Yeah. And so socialism is, and wokeism is all about not forgiving. Right. You did something years ago before you were woke, and you you stood before this uh, you know flag of some you know, the southern state, and and therefore we're going to punish you for that. Yeah. Whereas Christianity says for you forgive. It's interesting. The Christianity says, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." Wokeism says, "Do unto others others as they have done unto you and your ancestors." Yeah. It's interesting, the Bible says you do not punish a child for the parent's sin. Wokeism says you've got to pay for your parent's sin. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and then Jesus identifies sin, right? He says that, uh, um, you know, he tells the adulterous woman, go and sin no more. Yeah. Whereas wokeism says you not just have to um, uh, accept every alternative sexual behavior outside of man and woman marriage. You not only have to accept it, you have to embrace it. You have to celebrate it. Silence is violence. If you don't verbally say that you're affirming this, silence, you've committed a woke sin. Yeah, I, I just had this thought, and, and, and maybe we'll end on this because I know we got to let you go because you got to speak twice tonight. Um, if you go with the government they take away your free will and they become sovereign, which seems so ironic because if you go with God, what God actually does, even though he's sovereign, is he gives you your free will. I think that's an interesting juxtaposition. As you were talking, that kind of just hit me. It's just like individuality comes from God. That's why our government was built upon that because our founders had an understanding of the scripture that we often take for granted. Even if they were deists, they had Bibles by their bedside and they were using that as their philosophical textbook for life and for government. Um, and, and, and so it's interesting to me that that that's kind of the the decision we're almost making in our present age is are we going to give away our free will to the government or are we going to go with uh, the God who is sovereign but not a dictator that does give us the free will to be able to be individuals, to own individual property, to have individual wealth, to have individual blessings so that we may be a blessing to other people. Do you exist for the government's benefit or does the government exist for your benefit? Yeah. Our founding fathers says you get rights directly from God 
and the government exists to protect and guarantee your God-given rights. Yeah. If there's no right, if there's no God, you get your rights from the government, the social contract, the group, whatever the mob agrees upon. And the mob uh, thinks if your life is worth something to it, that's what Hegel says, that German socialist philosopher. He says, all the worth which the human being possesses, he possesses only through the state. Yeah. And then Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote The Social Contract, said, if the state says to an individual, it's expedient for the state that you should die, that individual ought to die because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. Yeah. And so if there's no God, then you exist for the state's purpose. And yeah. it's all the state said, wants is God power. God sacrificed himself for us, so if there is no God, you must sacrifice yourself for the state. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete flip. It happens very subtly. And they use Christian terminology. In other words, there's a term called seizing the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. And they, have to, they want to appear more moral and caring than you. Yeah. But they're not. And so the casinos do this. If a casino moves into a city, people that are against it will cite statistics of crime going up, prostitution, drugs. But if the casino gives money to schools, they can seize the moral high ground and say, we care about the children. <laughs> and unless you're supporting and voting for a proposition such and such to expand casinos, you must hate the children. You're a hateful person yep. because you're voting against casinos because casinos give money to children, right? So they've seized, seized the moral high ground. So they want to push their unjust, intolerant uh, agenda while wearing a label saying that they're more caring than you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's wild. Well, I, I could talk to you forever about this stuff. Thank you. It's been absolutely a blast and very, very insightful. And I appreciate who, who you are to the body of Christ. So one more time real quick. Um, if we want to buy your books, if we want to stay up to date with the American Minute, uh, give us your website. Well, thank you, Reed. My website is AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And one of the books we talked about today is called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. Yeah, that one is fantastic. And I sent out a free that. daily email. And and also, uh, you is this newer or older, uh, the book that you wrote about America and miracles? Because that's that's one that I'm really fascinated about. Yeah, yeah. So my wife and I put together a book. It's called Miracles in American History. Uh-huh. Um, there's two volumes to it. From the Revolution War of 1812, Civil War, Barbary Pirate War, where there's a crisis, it looks hopeless, and then we have leaders that call us to pray. And believe it or not, even days of fasting. Yeah. You know, John Adams had a day of fasting during a threatened war with France. Lincoln had two days of fasting during the Civil War. Even Woodrow Wilson called for a day of fasting during wow, World War I. I didn't know any of that. And, um, and so then things turned around and people rose up with courage. And, you know, so it's, it's an inspiring uh, couple books, Miracles in American History. And, um, uh, and so, again, the, the last thought is it's in times of crises that people turn to Christ, and it's in times of crises that God raises up great leaders. So even though, from the socialist perspective, they want to stir up crisis so they can consolidate power, God's got a plan behind the plan, and that plan is for, uh, number one, for us to turn to him, and number two, for us uh, to let him use us in the crises to minister to mm. people and stand up for the, the the defenseless and and show love to the unlovable. Let's do that. I couldn't think of a better place to end. Bill, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Reed. All right, God bless you, everybody. Bye-bye. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. 
IndieThinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>